Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're 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 Sick. All right, we're recording, man. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Uh, I got Gardner here today because we were um, working on the Art of Mr. Bill season five, doing some editing and stuff. So he's here today with me because uh, we were yeah doing editing. So I thought he could join the podcast too, if you're okay with that. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm surprised he's not over like, you know, taking out a wall for you or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, we already did all that and all the walls are gone. <laughs> Now you just have them around for fun. Gross. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, man. So um, thanks for coming on. And uh, how are you? How are you doing? Oh, all right. Just busy. (laughs) Oh, cool. What are you you doing? Uh, Mostly just wrapping up before vacation at the moment. I've got... I've got three videos I've been filming over the last, like, week, which has been intense because normally I only try to do one video at a time, sort of, like, sequentially because I work in batches of, like, threes for videos, but I've been basically filming and editing three videos side by side for the last couple of days. And then I've got, you know, client projects like sound design and scoring things and whatever that need done. So it's like trying to cram two weeks worth of work into like the last seven days. <laughs> mm. It's funny because I, I just watched your video about books that people should read if they're creatives. And one of them was called Essentialism, yeah. which I guess is like just about taking on like extremely essential work and like getting rid of all the, the shitty stuff. But yeah. now, you're, now you're doing the opposite thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm doing the stuff I feel is essential, but the problem is I feel like everything is really fun and interesting. <laughs> so, right. you know, and then it's but then it's a matter of like the different aspects of it as well, where it's like I have my YouTube projects and I'm only doing the ones that I really, really want to do. And then I'm doing my sound design work. And I'm only doing the ones I really, really want to do. And then I'm making music and, you know, all that stuff. So you pile what essentially amounts to like three different jobs together. Then it turns out it's just a lot of work all the time. <laughs> yeah, I kind of have the same thing, especially with touring where I'm like, uh, I don't really want to do too many shows this year because I want to work on a new album or something like that. And then I get like some offers from my agents and I'm like, well, that sounds fun. And then I end up being like on the road traveling all the time. And Yeah. And that's the thing is like I get these ideas. I nail down my schedule and I'm like, cool, I'm good at that. Everything's good. I'm excited. This is going to be awesome. And then, you know, you get halfway through one thing and you're like, oh, you know, like you get a cool idea for a song or, you know, I'm like, oh, I I just bought this, you know, weird guitar thing i should turn that into a sample library and then you know some new thing comes out or i get some idea and i pitch it to someone and they're like yeah let's do it so then next thing you know it's like cool i'm booked for the next six months solid hopefully Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing goes wrong during that time (laughs) (laughs) yeah true how was uh how was nam disappointing i don't know i i don't know where i fall with nam anymore i'm i'm kind of over it I enjoy the people at Nam. Like I enjoy having conversations, but I, I fail to see the relevance of Nam anymore. It's it's a. I mean, I've only been once, but I figured it was just like a giant 
uh, pissing contests between all the companies, basically. And I, I loved that. I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, if you, if, you know, a company who builds speakers go there and they're like, yeah, you, you built that speaker? Well, look at this fucking thing we built. And they bring yeah. like, an entire shipping container just full of, like, speakers. And there's, like, and, these and huge displays, yeah. And that was <laughs> that was my first NAM was in 20, uh, 2020, I want to say, mm-hmm. or 2019. And I guess that was, like, the last very big NAM. So my first experience, and I think I'm correct in saying it was one of the biggest NAM conventions they had had, at least recently. So that was my first NAM was just huge booths and there's like cool you know shirts and hoodies and water bottles and like all sorts of cool goodies you can get at the booths and yeah it was just kind of out big dicking each other with like oh the roland booth is like four floors of things and then you know mm-hmm. the yamaha booth is like we have a whole floor of the convention center with just amazing you know gajillion dollar grand pianos and stuff but the last couple of years well i guess one was gone due to uh covid um, whatever that was, 2021, I think. Um, but yeah, the last couple ones have just been really underwhelming. And I think it's because there's no announcements really anymore. Everything seems to get announced at Superbooth. But even then, it just doesn't make sense to announce things a lot of the times at these trade shows when it's like you could just put out a press release online and it's going to get picked up by the same news cycle anyway. And then on the other side from like the YouTube perspective, like I'm not going to film a NAM video. There's nothing to talk about. It's too loud. The lighting sucks. You can't (laughs) demo anything, you know? And then by the time your channel grows to a certain point, it's like, I can't have five minutes to myself at NAM to play with something. I got to shake hands. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? So that sucks. So on like the media side, I don't see the point in it. And then from the company side, it's like, you're going to pay godly, like godly amounts of money for this booth for let's say a couple hundred people to walk up to it. And out of them, a couple dozen of them actually know your product, but the majority just kind of walk up going, Oh, what do you do? Is it, you know, like you're a plug-in company, let's say, and you have a MIDI controller, right? They're like, do you guys make that piano thing? And you're like, no, we make software. Oh, okay. Thanks. And then they leave, you know? And it's like, I, I can't imagine for the tens of thousands of dollars it costs to have a booth at NAM that that's worth it. Well, I don't think the value is in selling someone who doesn't already know your stuff and your right. MIDI controller. I think the value in it for companies is the networking, right? So it's like they'll go and like buy a booth there, fly their whole company there. Some of us subsidized by promotion and stuff like that. Right. But I think for the most part, it's so, you know, Softube can go there and set up and like meet everyone who works at Native Instruments or whatever and maybe get a Yeah, it seems like something. the B2B front of it has been better yeah. the last couple of years. And I think arguably it's been because it's been smaller. Because this year I was, that was kind of half my thing was like, you know, talking to other companies and then, you know, they know I work with this other company. So then I would intro them of like, oh yeah, you know, I was just talking to so-and-so from whatever, I'll bring him over. And then we talk and then, oh yeah, I just met her. She's great. Let's, you know, let's go over to her her booth. So I guess there's value in that, but it's, it's also just like, can't this be done over email? It kind of can, but meeting in person is like definitely a little more valuable. I think, I, I think it is cool that everyone who's basically a gear creator and everyone who's like into gear and stuff all decide that like one time a year we're all going to go to this thing i didn't go this year but yeah i think it's cool like the first year i went um i had no idea what it was and i was i just walked (laughs) into this random place and was like what the hell is this there's so much shit like someone who's huge yeah yeah it was insane and from that i met andrew huang adam neely richard divine like tons of people that i and that's the fun part is you're walking around and you know you're like sipping your 43 dollar nambi 
beer and then you're like holy yeah. shit was that stevie wonder <laughs> yeah exactly it's like you'll just see like the most uh, crazy like um chris lord alge was uh, at one of the places like, yeah the and like food. people like that are just walking around and you're like oh sup dog you know how's it going yeah <laughs> yeah that shit is kind of sick uh, like the slight digital guys just like hanging around and shit yeah it's pretty cool I, I liked it and and the after parties are fun too like you oh yeah and i got invited to like a bunch of random like little hotel room after parties and shit for like random smaller companies and then i got invited to like a bigger um after party where native instruments had just like basically bought out the entire hotel bar and was just like yeah i think i'm still residually hung over from the splice party last year <laughs> that was yeah but but that's like the fun stuff is like you know meeting the companies and the people and things like that and that's really really fun but just it's gotten to a point where it's like it's all the way in anaheim and that's really far and I don't know. <laughs> kind of yeah, over why couldn't it. they? Why can't they just put Nam at my house, man? Come on. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, couldn't <laughs> it just be like Vegas or somewhere cheaper too? Because then it's like, if I go to the you know Anaheim Nam, it's like everything is really expensive, and it's you know like I would think hosting it in Chicago for a year or something like that's just as much of a major airport or something, but orders of magnitude cheaper. I would feel like, but I don't. I don't know. That's why yeah. I don't run Nam. <laughs> Speaking of Splice, um, uh, who have been very good to me, and I assume you too. Yeah, um, yeah. I wonder what's going to happen with them with this AI overtake because I I feel like at this <sighs> point, if you know how to use AI, which in Splice, like in the defense of every, it's pretty hard to use. It's not like super user friendly. No, so, not yet. I've um, I've seen a couple tools that have gotten pretty good that are still like very very you know alpha beta e, but yeah, like Dance Diffusion was a little bit of a pain in the ass to set up. I had a, luckily, a friend of mine was staying here who's a, an incredibly uh, good programmer who's been working at Google for like 20 years. So he was able to help me set it up in a way where I just can run a script off my desktop and it like does mm. all, everything, like installs all the dependencies and everything. And then I can just like feed it a sample and be like, give me like a billion iterations of that sample and I can just spit, keep spitting out iterations of it. Or I can give it a folder of samples and be like, make me a bunch of stuff or make a model that makes stuff like this you know right. like the average of this data set and so now i've got like a model that can do like archipelas i've got a model that can do like ad libs like little yeah uh, it's like that shit. it's gotten really powerful very very quickly um, right so how do you think that's going to affect something like splice i i suppose i have to choose some of my words carefully here um i have seen in-house tools from a couple different companies uh and I think the future of it looks something. There's one company in particular who's doing something kind of interesting with it where they have their existing sample set, you know, of like all the stuff on their sample service. And they're working on these tools that can basically kind of do what you said, where I could pick, let's say, 20 different guitar loops and I could feed it this and say, hey, I want a guitar loop that sounds something like these and it's in the key of G minor at about 120 BPM and it can more or less rough that out. But where it got really interesting and what they're building out of it is feeding it different things of like a drum loop, a guitar loop, and let's say like a vocal chop thing, right? And you've got these three loops that work together and they're already, you know, human made loops, let's call them. So you would feed it this and say, I need a bass line. And it would look at these things and figure out like the melodic movement and generate a bass line. And you could key it as like acoustic bass or, you know, 303 acid bass. And that was really cool. And I think that that's 
going to be the most efficient and useful way to kind of bring that technology forward because I think it rounds out the service nicely and it builds off your existing catalog where like let's say you have the I don't know who's that company like Loop Masters whatever lounge lo-fi guitar pack or something you know where it's like it's one of those packs of a hundred different lo-fi guitar loops it's cool to think that there could be a way for these services to then kind of expand their database and train it on their own stuff and I think that's what it's going to look like but I think it's going to get troublesome in that like where does that line get drawn on copyright and sourcing and things like that and I've done a couple videos on all this because the way we handle copyright in music is really stupid <laughs> and I think that's going to start really blurring the lines a lot of like do we have to cite the sources of these things or whatever but I don't know I don't think the companies are doing something dumb by doing this I think they're just taking advantage of the technology and like you know from a capitalist standpoint it makes sense to generate a bunch of new samples effectively for free you know at the cost of like running a server somewhere that generates drum loops all day <laughs> somewhere in the back of a sad lonely warehouse but yeah I don't know it's I'm curious to see how it's going to be applied because I envision a future of like AI and music where someone like myself when I was some 13 year old dipshit in the middle of nowhere in some corn fed town and fuck all Illinois I know how to play guitar but like I can't play drums for shit wouldn't it be cool if I could play my guitar line and say hey can you give me a bass loop and a drum loop that works with this and I could create you know some cool heavy metal music or you know I'm someone who's like a good vocalist and I can't play keys for shit of like hey I wrote this really good vocal melody what's a piano line that goes with that and I think that that's where that's going to come in with those types of services you know splice or whoever utilizing AI to generate new sounds to make that more useful I don't know I, I don't think it's a bad thing Oh, but, I definitely don't think AI is a bad thing. I, I agree that it's going to be used as a, like a tool that people who uh, it's going to just up accessibility, right? Like mu right. music production is already incredibly accessible as is. And I think but that's better. Like it's more people making music and that's awesome. And I think the ultimate thing, and, and that's something I'm actually, I've been working on a video on for months now is accessibility in music, specifically from the standpoint of like people with like physical or other disabilities where like, if you, if you lost the use of your, arm and you're a guitar player oh shit i can't make music anymore like that really sucks and you know imagine if you've never had the ability to you know play any because like most instruments are designed for people with the use of everything right <laughs> you know like the, the piano was not designed to be played without use of your hands and you know fine motor skills so I think that AI and stuff like that, it just, it opens it up. Like more people can express themselves and that's awesome. And people are going to use it and abuse it and make crappy music with it. And then people like, you know, Beato are going to sit there and boomerize on it on YouTube, but whatever. Like people are having fun <laughs> and that's cool. Like I, that, that would have saved me so much time as a kid <laughs> to not have to go learn how to record shit and play different instruments and figure all this out. If I could have just been like, I want to write a song today. All right, cool. Now I'm going to go play Call of Duty with my friends. Mm. I think people are going to license their models. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, like, you know, it's not too much different from, like, that Scarby bass sample library that everybody was, you know, using for bass and contact. So it's like if you've got a really sick model that you've trained on a whole bunch of, like, loops of you playing bass, I could sell the, the Garden Sound bass model. And people yeah. could have that on their track. 
And, maybe, and that's and that's actually something I'm working on right now with a company. <laughs> so I'm doing like a Venus theory model. Well, and go. I think that's super, super cool because it's like from someone who's a fan of my music's perspective, like, hey, cool, I can get, you know, sounds like I would hear in this song. But then on my perspective, it's like, well, shit, now I don't have to sit here, you know, running kick drums through my ridiculous kick drum maker chain to make cool kick drums. I can literally just say, hey, here's a thousand kick drums I've made. Can you just give me more of those, please? <laughs> yeah totally yeah that's that's basically what i did with like all of because I, I have a pretty organized sample library and i just have it all organized by shit that i like so i have all my favorite kicks in one folder all my favorite snares in another right. folder, all my favorite claps in another folder so i just train models on all of them and now when i want some some sample i quite often will just go to one of those models i train and be like make me some shit and then a couple of minutes later i'll just like have a you know 50 clips or whatever and i can just go through them quickly and be like all right that one's good and then pick it and uh, know that it's never been used in a track before right. and, and that's the cool yeah. thing is like yeah where it's like hey i have these sounds i like but they're not quite right you know and that that's the process right we sit there with our fucking drum kits open and we click through all right i need a better kick drum and then we sit there going dun, 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 for an hour going through our, our folder of eight billion fucking kick drums but like with ai tools that's so cool that you could just quickly iterate on it and get something like really fresh and different or slightly different where you're like, you know, I like this, but it's not bright enough. You know, imagine mm. like that kind of that GPT approach of like, make this kick drum hard as fuck, boy. And it just does some stuff and gives you a harder kick drum or like make this more mellow. And it's like, OK. Yeah, I, I also think another good use for AI is going to be upsampling audio or anything really for that matter. Uh, where you can just say train a model on nothing but side information or nothing but high frequency information and then give it other samples and be like make, remake this sample but it will just remake the highs or just remake the sides and, and then put them back together or something like that so you've got now generated side information rather than like Haas effect shit or something like that yeah and that can be super useful for like stem separation where like there's so many plugins and so many of those stupid ai services that have emailed me about like we have this game changing da -da 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 -da. And yeah, like what if you could just put a bandpass filter on a mix to get like the guitar line out and then you're just, you know, and it sounds really bandpassed and crappy and you feed that into something that just like generates the missing information and makes it sound like the stem. Or you mm. could alter it, you know, take this and make it cleaner. Make this more chill. Like well, that's... we already have stem separation from FFT stuff. So right. I think like if anything, it would just like go through an extra filter, right? So it'd be like original source content, go through FFT, then remake the layers. Yeah, and like or that could sample be... them because a lot of the FFT separation currently sounds like very aliased and spectral and stuff like that. So, I, and that I would be cool if it would do that, where you know you could feed something into it and it would kind of fix all the grossness of mm -hmm. it, or you know <clears throat> where it could be like mid journey or something, where like you do that and it upsamples it or generates yeah like stereo information from like a mono source or whatever, and then you're like create ten variations on that. And then it's like, cool, now I have a different hook line for my chorus or wow, OK, that one's going to be like perfect for the intro, you mm -hmm. know, and you could say how different, you know, I want this to be 50 percent different or I want this to be 90 percent different. Give me something that's like a hard left turn melodically. And that gives me as like a composer or something, a great idea to, you know, add a turnaround to this piece when I've been stuck on it for four days and the client needs it by tonight. Yeah, gen generate like uh, idea generation. I think is another cool aspect yeah. of it. I, I also have a model that I train on my discography, and it will just spit out like tiny little loops that are like five seconds long, 
and one of them usually will will generate me an idea one of one of the things that a lot of people i've been uh hearing on generally like twitter or even on other podcasts or real life that they have this fear that um oh but if ai can write music then like what's the point of me making music anymore but (laughs) to that my my thought is like how many times in my life have i actually even heard a track that i wouldn't do anything to like how many times have i actually heard a track where i'm like that's perfect i wouldn't change a thing right like maybe once ever or something like i can't even remember a song like that to be honest i can't even give you an, an example of one where i'd be like i wouldn't change a thing about that song and that to me just says like no matter what ai generates it's going to be no different because it's only going to be trained on everything humans have ever done which i already think is imperfect and would change anyway so right yeah and this includes my past work like works that i've made on on a certain day where i'm like that's perfect that's done i'm releasing it you could show it to me today and i wouldn't think the same thing about it i would think like oh actually i could have changed this and that and this um so i i think yeah it's always just going to be something to generate fodder for you to work from to get closer to your ideals on the day right and, and there's like i said there's going to be people that abuse that where they just like generate a thousand songs and upload them to fucking soundcloud or whatever and that's fine you know other people are going to use it as like an inspiration tool where it's going to give you yeah a little a little spit out of like oh yeah I, I could make that work i could change this and do this and cool and other people are just going to not touch it whatsoever and life's going to keep on spinning because you know, if if making music doesn't make you happy and you feel like the AI is going to defeat the point of you making music because you're in this for like the accolades and recognition, then like go go start gardening or something. Like, I, I, have, a, I have a question for you. Sure. If somebody abuses AI and they make a thousand AI songs a day and they upload them all to SoundCloud and they get massive from it because so many people get vast enjoyment from these uploads and they like you listen to them and they get like a human actual emotion like happiness or joy or excitement or any of the other emotions that you experience when you listen to music that you like if so many people get that from ai uploaded music from an artist and then they get big because of that is there anything wrong with that i mean i don't really think so it's like looking at you know jackson pollock and being like well i could do that <laughs> and that's the thing is you fucking didn't yeah and exactly that, you know and it, it like the the uh, i don't know it, it just comes down to like what what do you value about music do you value the process of creating do you value the way the audience interacts do you value the way it makes you famous and important and better than everyone else do you value the way that it brings fulfillment to your own life does having ai generated music totally destroy your feelings and validity then like that i think that's that's not an ai problem that's a you problem <laughs> Right, and this is a good segue into the Notlow thing probably, right? Because she made a track, <laughs> a bunch of people got enjoyment from the track, right? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, and then a bunch of people got pissed off because she well, used a bunch of people some samples. who produce got pissed off. Right. And that's the thing is, are you producing for other producers or are you producing for the audience? And well, I, actually, I, don't... I actually think it was more non-producers that got pissed off and that's why this issue existed in the first place because they just don't understand how music is made right. anyway. I think that like... was part of it too. On the, A lot of the Reddit threads I read when I was researching for that whole video was, yeah, it was people like, I, you know, if I would have known that so-and-so, because, you know, other people brought up other artists who use loops and whatever and it was like, if I would have known, I, yeah, I would have like, never bought their it's like none of these people had ever heard of daft punk in their life right 
So like these these dudes literally, if you go to like samples that they used and listen to the, their track versus the original, it's like basically no different. They added like a disco drums to it, and people are like, yeah, but that was used in like a genius way, man. Don't even. But see that yeah, that, that was Daft Punk. That wasn't yeah, exactly. this this rando I've never heard of, you know. And that's it's the same right. way of like, yeah, man. But the Beatles did minor seven chords differently. It just <laughs> it just hit just doesn't hit the same. Yeah, I I don't know. The whole Not Low thing was just so funny and frustrating because it was just i mean it's like you know when people find out about back lines at like you know the big venues here in nashville where it's like there's an auto-tune rack in the back that makes the vocalist stay on key and it's like this is this is the music industry if you pay you know whatever that taylor swift concert is where the the tickets are a gajillion dollars if you paid a thousand dollars to go see Taylor Swift and like she and she's a great vocalist but let's just say Taylor Swift sucks live and she's all out of key and whatever you as the person going to that concert are gonna be like this was a ripoff it's an insurance policy and I think you know like it's not that loops are an insurance policy against like a lack of talent but it's just I feel like people don't like to have the inner workings of music production and the music industry demystified you know, where like when you pull back that curtain, it's kind of uncomfortable to realize a lot of the truths of like, yeah, everything's auto-tuned and time aligned to fuck. Like, you know, when it comes to modern concert productions, it's not a concert. It's a theater show. Yeah, it's like professional wrestling. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, that, but that, but that's the silent majority of consumers like that. If I'm going to WWE, I want to watch people get thrown on tables and drink beer and eat hot wings and get excited when you know joe or not joe rogan i don't know some guy comes out with like veins popping out of his forehead yelling about <laughs> his grandma's truck or whatever they talk about in wrestling you know like that's why i'm there and i think that it's not any less valid that it's all staged and i don't think not low like staged anything they just did the thing you know they made music with loops god forbid so I, I actually downloaded the pack that she used and I also downloaded the project file that people were saying that she used and the project file for that pack was not that song. It was it completely was a, different, if yeah, I it was remember a different, right. Yeah. It's a totally different song and I looked through the loops and some of the loops that were in the track that she made were the same, but the project file was totally different. However, the, the SoundCloud upload for the project um, for that pack is different as well, which I don't really even fucking understand yeah. like where that project file comes from. I tried to even find it and I couldn't even find it. So my understanding was just someone got really emotional and reactive and posted on Reddit and then it took off. <laughs> and like, I understand the arguments of where they're coming from of like, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, construction kit music and stuff like that. It does represent sort of an ethical problem as a consumer maybe, but it's like, the majority of people don't care and that's kind of the thing I, I think i mentioned in my video of like you know whenever i'm listening to music or something i'll sit there and huff and guff about all sorts of dumb shit but then you know i'll, I'll mention it to my wife from like you know because she she listens to like a lot of the top 40 stuff and things like that and uh she'll always put on a spotify playlist in the car whenever we get in the car to go anywhere she puts on all the new music she's found lately and it's funny because like it makes me kind of tilt shift into like a different mode but i'm always bitching and griping about like oh like they could have done a better you know chord there like they could have done some more interesting harmony there my wife doesn't give a fuck you go all rick beato on it oh yeah i get real <laughs> boomery sometimes with a lot of that stuff of just yeah but then it's funny because I'll, I'll come home and show her i'm like you know oh but like imagine if it went like this and that's the part of creating music it's all subjective none of it it only has the value and you know grandeur of whatever you assign to it 
Mm. It, you know, yeah. None of it fundamentally means anything. There is no right way to express yourself. And, you know, if AI does it or loops do it, then whatever. You know, if, like I said, it's just, I guess it just comes down to that, like what provides the fulfillment value for you with music, either as an yeah. artist or as a consumer. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with that. I think if people are getting value from making music with AI and then people are also getting value from listening to that music, I don't see anything wrong with a more expedited process of that. I, well, and it's like, wouldn't that be cool if you're just like in a mood and you're like, can you write me a happy song to go clean the garden to? And you have like fun listening to it and great. And then you upload it and it goes super viral on TikTok and yay. You know, and it, it just, I don't know where that, that ends and why does everything have to become this product with music and why do we always judge it on the merit of that? Because it's like, it's like a generative modular patch. You know, it's like the 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 philosophy of impermanence, you know, it's it, it only exists in that moment until I turn this off or unplug it and it never exists again. And same thing, like is is that any less valid than when I go strum my guitar for 20 minutes while my dog's taking a fat shit in the yard and I don't I don't record it, I don't save it, I don't share that with anybody. That musical moment is one and done the end. Mm. you know <laughs> i think there's a there's a there's another part to that conversation where it's like why so like where, where the to a degree and i wrote i wrote a i wrote a piece about this um about the notlo thing and from my perspective and what i was able to relate to it on was i used to have that same mentality where it was like if there isn't enough effort put into a thing like if i see somebody getting clout or getting attention or getting the thing I want, which is what I used to want. I used to want those things. Right. You know, then, and they're doing it by putting forth less effort than my perceived effort, then that's not fair. So it's the same reason that there's a certain sect of people who don't think that student loans should be forgiven because they didn't get theirs forgiven. Right. So like, right. They're, yeah. They're like, Oh, it's not fair. It's not fair. So like that, that fairness conversation like that for me, like that kind of, that rings home where I'm like, man, I feel really silly now that I'm, you know, 34 and I'm looking back on myself like as as I used to be and, and thinking about some arguments that I used to have where it was like, oh, well, that person, this is, you know, going back to another conversation where it was like, are DJs musicians? That used to be a controversy. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, no, I, I, was I was the same saying, way. Oh, I thought I thought all electronic guitars. music was junk. Yeah. yeah. yeah they, like, they don't know how to play the upright bass. They're not fucking. Yeah, I was the same way. That was the background I came from was like, you know, real music is made by people on, you know, on a, on a record in a studio. And yeah. And carpenters like, used to say, oh, if you use power tools, you're not a real carpenter. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like, and it's the same. It's the same stupid thing. And then it's, you know, like it comes down to like. You know, yeah, the fairness thing is always a funny one because it's like I don't I can't understand this idea that you're entitled to success or entitled to other people's time with whatever it is you make. But and that's something I've got. I think that video maybe comes out tomorrow, but I've been talking about kind of the idea of like this impact and this legacy and this fetishism that we have for that idea. But it's like. You know, as someone who works super hard to write music and like not use loops and whatever, are you any more of a musician than like my five-year-old nephew when he comes and bangs on the pots and pans in my kitchen? You know, like is so I, Sting I, any more of a musician than that? I don't know. I think I think part of this thought comes from the fact that like human time is like basically the only non-renewable resource right yeah. and therefore if you put more effort into something that probably means you spent more time on it 
and therefore it has some more like inherent value because it used right. up some more of this non-renewable resource or whatever and specifically more value to you because it was your non-renewable resource right. that, you, that you used on it well uh, that's but, the but in the what end, is that called in psychology where like if we if we're going to give something away to like goodwill or whatever we value it higher than what we pay for it if we saw it there you know like if you're if you're giving away your old tea mug or whatever you're going to say oh this is you know it's a yard sale right it's it's three dollars at my yard sale but i go to someone else's yard sale and if, if that mug costs more than 25 cents i don't need it that bad it's stupid right it's it's the value we yeah we place on it based on our own input and and that's kind of something i was talking about at some point was just the idea that like you don't decide your magnum opus or like the value of your work the people do and even then it's right. completely subjective you know yeah, i think yeah. any any artist will tell you that like you put out music and you're like i i fucking hated that song and everybody loved it or like you know this one song in this album i kind of threw on there people really liked that one i got a lot of great feedback on that one or you know and, and that was something i was reading about the other day there was the uh south park the creators of south park talking about you know throwaway ideas and whatever and it was the the world of warcraft episode if you remember mm. that one if you watch oh, south yeah. park yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, make love not warcraft and he was talking about how like this was the worst episode and we were going to pull it and didn't want to put it out and like that's one of their most well-known episodes it's the still. only one my wife has ever seen right yeah it's a <laughs> yeah. classic episode and it's it's again it's just i don't know the value is never absolute how do you yeah. kill that which has no life? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, sword from, of a thousand truths, yeah. For me, that is a uh, pleasure seeker. I was like not going to put that track out really. I was just going to use it as the ending track to my podcast. And then so many people started asking about it that I was like, oh, fuck it, I'll put it out on, on Phantasmagoria. Now it's got almost 2 million plays, right. like way yeah. more than anything else I've, <laughs> I've got plays on. And yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, with that I made one, that in like, like 30 minutes, I made that. Right. And like, like I'm like sure you had a ton of fun writing that song. And it, if that song provided no less value to your life than your favorite song you've ever written. It was just the experience of the work. Right. Exactly. That's, what, that's reason, what added validity to the existence of the thing. Right. But now it has more like a, a bunch more value to it than, you know, for instance, I've spent like, you know, weeks and weeks on a certain piece mm. put that out and it gets like thirty thousand plays and doesn't move my career at all i make basically no money from it then i spend like 40 minutes or whatever on a tune put it out it gets millions of plays i make tons of money from it and my career grows a shitload from it it's like what <laughs> but in, but in the act of doing though that's not the thing you're thinking of right exactly yeah i'm just thinking like i'm making a tune and that's all exactly. i'm thinking and, and that's all that you tune. can assign to the creative process you know in any right. facet of whatever you're doing you know if you're a painter or a writer or a musician or whatever it's just it's the act of doing that you have to just be so obsessed with mm. i sometimes wonder if you just get out of the way of yourself when you're creating more uh like basically just treating everything as like demos and basically working sort of like an amateur which is i think something that one of those books was talking about um mm -hmm. yeah if if that generally not all the time but in general like on, more, on an average will produce work that more people will maybe resonate with than if you like well it's because they're not afraid to release nerdy. stuff like if you're if you're an amateur you're just like i put out a song all right it goes on soundcloud all right on to the next one you know i think we all empathize with those days you know even if like you weren't part of the soundcloud era in like you know the heyday but you know yeah when you when you start out making music you you write it 
song with your friends or you make a, a cool song and beat in FL or whatever and you, you upload it and it's done. And mm. that dynamic changes so much when you're like, okay, I'm going to be a famous rock star or what I'm going to be a DJ or whatever. And it's like now you're you're going to get in the way of like censoring that process and the idea and trying to, you know, read the tea leaves of like what's going to make this a hit and whatever. And I think to some degree that can work, but fundamentally it has to remain an amateur process of just – creating and releasing without any sort of fear whatsoever of just here is the thing you know like bjork is the example i use all the time i do not fucking understand bjork one bit and i love it it's the videos are so weird the music is way the fuck out there it's awesome and i think it's just because like bjork in the truest sense is like an artist and that's I think what we all have to aspire to, to some degree, is like just to not give a fuck and just put stuff out. I think part of this, at least for me, comes from this like one upsmanship kind of mentality where I'm like, well, I put that out. That was this good. Well, my next thing's got to be better than that. Yeah. So then I put more effort into it, make sure the new tracks that I'm putting out are mixed better. The music, musically, they're like more coherent, like all that kind of stuff. Make and sure the like, sound design is more impressive, all that sort of shit. And I think that's it's uh, probably got like a pretty hard ceiling to it. And at some point, you probably have to accept that and just be like, all right, this is the best I can do and put it out and hope people like it. Well, and like, you know, from like the philosophical standpoint, you know, looking at like Kant and the aesthetic theories of music and whatever, like that all is subjective. So yeah, there, there absolutely is a hard ceiling to it, but it's your ceiling and that is always a moving goalpost because that's insanely relative to every single person that consumes something. You know, I show, I showed my wife death grips the other day and she's like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, are you kidding me? I love death grips. Like, you know, you go listen to Hannah Montana, dumbass. <laughs> but I feel like that goalpost also moves with the times, right? It's like what right. was seen as like perfect, like the ideal thing for me in 2014 is very different than what well, I what's see. The, is now what's the phrase? It's uh, when something is trendy, it's one step away from cliche. And that's that's true mm -hmm. of your own work, too, where like you have your little eras of like, I'm doing this and I love to do this and I like using these samples. And then you listen back and you just cringe at like, God, okay, it was look at that it was kick 17 again way to be fucking mozart <laughs> you know right. there's there's the chop snare oh boy <laughs> fair um so you said earlier you were doing some projects for like clients and stuff what, what generally does your client work look like like what kind of stuff do you usually do um, a lot of sound design, you know, presets and things like that. I used to do a lot more samples and loop kits and things like that. Uh, I've gotten more away from that just because the pay is so garbage anymore. And like, I, I don't see that being a career anymore, especially like all the AI tools that have come out are the ones that I've seen that are in the works. It's like, wait, so when you make a sample pack of loops, you don't take points on that. You just do a flat fee. Uh, it kind of depends on the project. Um, in some cases, you know, back and and I, I kind of quit doing those like a couple years ago. So anytime I, think, I do yeah, packs, taking anymore, a flat fee for that kind of stuff seems pretty whack. I think like the yeah, move it was for pretty samples shitty. is putting your own name on it and putting it out as samples where you get sales per sample. Well, and that's the thing now is like I put it out on my you know for my patrons or things like that, and I I don't think I'll ever go back to making you know loop packs that go on splice or something because when I did do that, it was a great way to kind of cut your teeth and learn the ins and outs of like how to make a sample pack and kind of streamline my workflow but then it became like 
um, commissioned work. I've worked with a couple like trailer production places and whatever for, you know, like movie trailer sound effects and shit like that. So that's um, sometimes done as like a flat fee or sometimes it's done kind of like music licensing where like if the sounds get used, then I get, you know, some kind of residual on that. It kind of just depends on the project. So I do that kind of stuff. Um, I work a lot on preset design for like hardware and software, you know, like when there's a new instrument coming out, I'll work on presets for it. Or if there's like a new plugin, I'll do presets for that. Or I might do like consulting on that where, you know, some company's working on a thing. So I'll be kind of like a super beta tester and, you know, run it through a bunch of stuff and see what it does, provide some feedback on like the UI and UX and, you know, some sounds and things like that. Uh, and then I work doing sample libraries, obviously, you know, like contact instrument type stuff, um, doing, and then I do my own decent sampler libraries now, which has been awesome. I love doing those things, but similar stuff where like, you know, making multi-sample instruments and yeah, I would be crazy for making multi-sample instruments. That would save so much time. I would be so yeah. happy. If you like, need to make like a shit ton of like slightly different one shots. Yeah. Well, and that. that's, I think that's where stuff like that sound paint plugin do some particularly clever things where it's like the interpolation between the different velocity layers where it can give you, you know, 127 velocity layers generated from, you know, four velocity layers. And that's right. a really great idea. And I think that's going to be something that's pretty cool. But yeah, I enjoy doing that stuff. And then I do a lot of uh, demo music for things, you know, like when there's like videos of a new plugin that come out someone's got to write the music that goes in the trailer you know shit like that right. um demo tracks for products yeah we're like you know when you go to the web page and there's like 10 demo tracks or whatever i do that kind of stuff and then yeah you know writing music for apps and things and starting to kind of want to get more back into library music but I don't know that that's really worth it anymore. <laughs> yeah, AI is going to take over that as well, I think. Yeah. If so. people don't, like, care who made it or how much effort's in it or, like, yeah. whatever, they don't really give a shit about, like, whether or not it's, like, 10% or 20% better because a human did the, didn't add all the noising right, yeah. so and I've, shit that AI adds, then I think yeah, people are going to use that That's kind of the thing I've been getting more into is, like, just the commissioned work side where I get more of the creative freedom and not so much the, like, we need sad piano chords with reverb on it. Because that, you know, that stuff just makes me want to beat my fucking face into the wall. So that's been nice to get work with, like, some apps and things like that. And and doing things like that is really fun, too, where, you know, sometimes it's, like, the UI and UX sound design of, like, little clicks. And what does the menu sound sound like? And when you win, what does it do? <laughs> and, you know, things like that are really fun. So I enjoy doing a lot of that. And I, I kind of want to get more into that. But, you know, the composing stuff is just so insanely gatekeepy and competitive and also just... I don't see that being a job for a long time. <laughs> right. So, um, would you say most of your income then at this point comes from Patreon? Uh, probably a pretty, and this is more by design, but it's probably a pretty even split between sound design stuff, YouTube, and then Patreon, but less and less YouTube now. Cause I'm just kind of way fucking done with sponsors and that kind of stuff. I, cause mm -hmm. I, I just kind of quit doing gear tube cause I was sick of it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah anymore, enough. it's probably, the the big chunk is probably split yeah between like sound design and patreon stuff and that's just by design because you know every month these things go up and down and youtube mm. as well obviously is like you know every every month on youtube the paycheck is just surprise so <laughs> like music streams for you are not like really a, a considerable split not really because i don't really release music for streaming mm. you know like there's not a lot of 
Spotify money to be earned on 30 second bumper music. <laughs> right. For, for that 30 second bumper music, do you um, register it with a PRO? No, like, I, I need to sign up for like ASCAP or something at some point, but I'm just fucking lazy. Yeah, dude, so like, I don't know like what projects you've done and what, what films you've been in and stuff, but I did this Nicolas Cage movie a while ago. Oh yeah, and Mom and Dad. Yeah, and I registered yeah. all of those tracks with a PRO. That was the only reason I watched that movie, I will have you know. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I uh, registered all those tracks with a PRO, which might have been the smartest thing I've ever done because like some mm. months my, my uh, PRO paycheck will be like 30 bucks which is just sort of what it normally is right. from like spotify streams and all that kind of like people playing it in clubs and filling out lprs and shit sometimes it'll be like that but then all of a sudden like they will have just released it in a theater in like japan or something like that and i'll, I'll look in the the thing every month and be like wait what the fuck is like seven grand this month what happened and then i'll look into it and it's like it just started showing in a new country yeah i need to something. get more into that but i haven't done any like major major projects and I don't know. That's also sort of by design because I really like working with the really small indie people just to be like, let's just make something cool. Mm, and, you yeah. know, I'm happy to be like, you know, all right, it's going to be let's do, you know, it'll be five grand just to do all the music and sounds. And I get I get, you know, kind of the the blank license of like go nuts. <laughs> so, yeah, that's more yeah. fun, I think, when there's less red tape. Pretty much. Yeah. And that's the thing is just like, let's just make this good. And like, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm going to work on it until I'm happy with it. It's going to take me about this much time. So factoring in how much I want to get paid per day, that's going to cost me this much time. Good to you. Good to me. All right, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> nice. You know, and I, have, I need uh, to get better about that. But nah. do you have like pretty strict work hours every day or are you sort of just a workaholic who works all the time? <laughs> yeah, probably more the latter, even though like I would, I would try to do more of the former, but it's just. I think that's just the music industry, though, is and especially working with so many clients where, you know, a lot of them are Europe and sometimes like someone's working out of the office in Japan or something or, you know, someone in the Sydney office needs to be on the call where it's like, I, you know, I can't just say I'm 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 here from nine to six. Mm. It's just, you know, OK, we have to have this meeting or, you know, something comes up and then I got to jump on a call at like fucking two in the morning. <laughs> But mm. yeah, I, I try to do that and I'm trying to get more of a better work-life balance because I'm trying to get more and more away from these things and sort of build it back into the idea of just like bake the pie and sell the pieces because I'm just, I don't know, I'm getting pretty tired of working with so many different companies and doing all these things and I've backed off a lot of the clients just to like the companies I really, really enjoy working with and doing the things I really want to do. But now it's like, I kind of just want to get back to releasing more of my own original music and writing more of my own original music and putting things on Spotify and, you know, doing that kind of stuff just because, like, conceited as it is, it's just gotten to the point where it's like, well, what do I want to do? You know, I've already worked with, like, every company I could ever want to work with and, like, all the dumb projects. I'm like, that would be crazy. I've, like, been there, done that. So it's mm. kind of like I kind of just want to go do my own thing for at least i don't know a little while <laughs> what what are you finding as the sort of thing that you've that you found to be fun out of all the things that you want to continue doing i really like building the decent sampler instruments and doing like multi-sample libraries like that um you know and that was i think a lot of that came from doing some stuff on piano book before i pulled all my instruments and stuff off there it was just that was really fun to have a license to be like all right if i could make any library i wanted to make what would it be and not just getting commissioned of like you know we need lo-fi analog synths and it needs to be you know at least 10 different sources multi-sampled in this format and da, 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 da. whereas like the decent sampler stuff it was like all right i'm gonna buy a viola and i don't know how to play viola but i'm gonna sample it and what does that do 
and I get this really unique string library that I get to use, you know, for my own scoring work and things like that. But I get to give it away to other people and hear what they made with it. And that's super cool. So I love doing that. And then, yeah, you know, just like making music. I just want to get more and more back into that and actually doing stuff that I get to release under my own flagship and not just like license out, you know, music for other people to put on like a web page or something. Yeah, I've always thought like releasing stuff under your own name, you may get paid less initially. Uh, but over time, I think it's a good investment because right. eventually once you just have that that brand to put stuff under, then there's like no red tape at all. It's like, well, that's the nice time, thing is like when I've just... gotten my music used on YouTube videos, that's been a really popular thing for me lately is like, you know, someone's watched my YouTube channel and like, hi, I make gaming videos. Can I use this song? It's like, OK, cool. And then I get a little, you know, ping back every time someone does that. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> Wait, how does that work? Like if somebody uses your stuff in a video and, and how do you how do you get paid from that? If it's registered with content ID, it gets flagged in like the database and you get. But that means I, that they can't monetize that video at all, right? I don't really understand it because I see ads on their videos and I, I know I get a cut of it. But it's like I don't think I'm getting all the cut because, you know, I've seen some of my tracks get put in like. There was one that was like some K-pop group and there was like some kind of drama. So it was some like T video on this K-pop thing. And the video got like 800,000 views. And my song was like in the beginning and it was just under some dialogue. Like they were talking about whatever this drama was with some K-pop group. And I know from my own videos, like if I have a video that does 800,000 views, I know how much that's going to make me. And it's like I might get maybe a hundred dollars from them using hmm. that track how so, much to, out of curiosity how much does an eight hundred thousand video play get i think because it, it really depends on a lot of different factors of like what types of ads are served up what demographic is it getting served to because i've done videos where like for a hundred thousand views i'll get you know three thousand dollars or five thousand dollars on like the tippy top end but on the other end i might do a video that gets a hundred thousand views that makes four hundred dollars huh. so i think it kind of depends on what audience it gets like funneled to because like some audiences are worth more or the ads yeah yeah i think it's a combination thereof of like hmm. Who who are the people watching this video and what type of ads are going to be most effective to serve them? And I think it comes down to like, yeah, how competitive is that space? Right. So like relative speaking, like that, that book video I put out that you watched, that one comparatively is earning significantly more money than like almost any other video I've done, at least in recent memory. Even huh. though it doesn't have a ton of views, if that tracked up and hit... If that hit half a million views, I'd probably be looking at like a ten to twenty thousand dollar payday. It's probably because book people give more click through. I know a couple of yeah. book people, and they just buy silly amounts of books. I'm like, How and that's kind of what I'm books? thinking. Is like, I think it's <laughs> the people that watch that are probably into books and home improvement, self improvement, and things like that. So I'm thinking. And I don't know, because, like, I have my own Google account, and then I have, like, my Smurf Google account just to, like, creep my own videos and see, like, what kind of ad buys are happening and things like that. Um, or just to see, like, you know, if I search this, where does my video fall in the algorithm for, like, a generalized user? Dude, the amount of money in a home improvement video is cracked. Yeah. There is so much money in that. So I think it kind of comes down to those things, but I think if you're getting a video that does, yeah, 800 to a million I would say bare minimum you're looking at at least 10,000, but it really comes down to the niche because, like, mm. I, I know a couple people 
who I've worked with on some stuff who do like beauty videos. And one of them, I mean, her CPMs and whatever, I mean, are, are just fucking unreal where it's like she can do a video that gets 5,000 views and make $400. I don't understand it. Wow, it's got to be click through. They've, they've got to yeah. be prioritizing click. Yeah. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that like produces a sort of like inherently thieves because right. like we, we steal shit from day one right it's like no one has money to buy like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of software to make music on when they start so everyone steals shit from day one and on top of that like we're all you know sampling everything and whatever so like right. the, the, the theft is in the art form almost as well so i feel like yeah maybe making videos for producers versus people who buy books or people who buy beauty products or people who own houses and want to improve their shit Right. And that's like the, yeah. the stuff I watch on YouTube is like I, I barely watch music content on YouTube and the ads I get served are, I'm sure, significantly different than someone who would be watching a music production video, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's but I think that's also it. We're like, you know, the production market, I'm sure the profits are like razor thin, especially for, you know, plug in companies like small plug in companies and whatnot. So the ad buys are probably mm -hmm. pretty small because they don't have a ton of money to swoop at marketing. But then you know, like I said, it's also a surprise every month. So ad buys during holidays, you know, November, December specifically, way, way up. So like, your videos that make less during the rest of the year make way more during those months? If they pop off during that time. But like during that time, I know if I release the right types of videos, I can make a ton of money off AdSense. Hmm. Huh. Which is yeah, like something I try to keep in mind because then it's like, okay, if I do one video that's going to do well, probably in like the ad buys, that means I could finance the idea I really want to do in like, you know, January, February when it's way, way low. Mm, yeah, a smart meta, meta YouTubing. Yeah, I have a very, <laughs> I don't know, I have a very distilled process for how I work through like content, but I, I feel like I've gotten a yeah. lot better at being a YouTuber, but I don't know. Did you we'll listen see. to the Lex Friedman and Mr. Beast episode of the Lex Friedman podcast? Mm-mm. Dude, that guy is on another fucking level. Mr. Oh, Beast, sure. like yeah. everything he does in his life, like pretty much everything just is related to YouTube. Like he just thinks about YouTube. Like how can I get another hundred billion views? Like he, he's just like, how can I make like one more thing better in every right. video? He yeah, there was spends a shit ton on his videos. Though. Like he just gives away. Oh, God. Money. Like it's yeah, I can't I can't even imagine the level of production it takes. Um but yeah, that was something I heard. I can't remember where that was. It was on some podcast, I think, or maybe in a book somewhere. But it was a quote uh, talking about like earning money. And if you think about, you know, as someone like, let's say a small business owner, you want to make $100,000 this year. The best way to do that is probably with your time. Like if I spend my time very efficiently and optimize these things, I could make $100,000 this year. But if you want to make a million dollars, you can't do that. Right. You have to be like, how you have to I make think way differently and like way bigger with how am I going to make a million dollars? Yeah. You need to invest in things at that point, basically. And I think that's the sort of the same line of thinking that it requires to do YouTube really well of like, you know, how am I going to hit the generalized audience? And if you can do that, then you can, you know, Mr. Beast it to a degree. Mm. But then, yeah. And, 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 you know, like in fairness, yeah, Mr. Beast is like, the top youtuber arguably <laughs> so it's like if you want to do that you have to go all in with like youtube is everything i do and i think that's that's true of a lot of creative fields like you know if you want to be known for like your music and your touring and whatever you have to 
just play a bazillion shows and be super broke for like 10 years until it finally starts to pay off <laughs> pretty you know? much yeah you need to just be like having a crazy music release schedule and a crazy touring schedule always right. pretty much yeah it's a lot and, of work <clears throat> yeah i think youtube's kind of the same way where it's like if you really <laughs> want to do youtube super well you have to really think it through and you have to think the hundred thousand versus the million question mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, hey, man, um, we're probably going to get back to editing this series. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, though. It was yeah, nice thanks for having me. And, yeah, of course. And uh, is there anything you want to plug before we leave? Uh, let's see. I've got my weird new art film thingy I just put out today that flopped in the algorithm. So if you want to go look at that, you can. I went went across the country with Ben Jordan for a NAM trip and we filmed a bunch of weird locations. So I put that out and that was a super fun project. And then uh yeah, you can find me on my YouTube channel. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool man. Well thanks again. Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, you should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, but but just know that that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, just just putting that out there. I know what I